Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. What's up, DBDL listeners? Back with another special episode. This one, we are going back through our catalog of every single episode that dropped in 2023 and taking some of the favorite stories, some of the favorite concepts, frameworks, ideas shared from all of our non-triad member guests, people like Henner Gracie from the family that brought jiu-jitsu to America, people like Simon Bowen, one of the foremost visual models experts in the world, people like Taylor Schulte, who has built an entire business on using a podcast as a funnel. People like Dave Zoller doing a very similar thing, except on YouTube. So we've taken their top takeaways. We've condensed them into one jam-packed episode here where we can kind of curate some of the best ideas and concepts and share them back with you and do a little rewind in some of the top moments from 2023. So we're going to do a special offer on today's episode because this is such a mix of a number of past guests. Many of them on their specific episodes offered a book, a framework, something they were specifically using in their business as a free give to you, the DBDL audience, the listeners out there. So we're just going to have a mix of all of those to where when you land on the page on our website, you can select based on your favorite clip, the favorite ideas shared here today, which give you want to take from their episode. We've got a number of books in the DBDL library, and we'll send those out until they're gone. So with that, here's what you need to do to gain access to that. Simply text the number, not the word, 47 to our DBDL Insider hotline. It is 785-800-3235. That is the number 47. It's 785-800-3235 or DBDL. And we'll text you back with exactly how to fill out a form. So we've got your mailing address and we can send you the book or the special give directly to your doorstep. One disclaimer, if you are an international listener, number one, we love you. Thank you for listening in overseas or wherever you may be. But when the shipping cost is more expensive than the actual book we're sending, it just doesn't make sense. So I just encourage you to support whichever author by just going to Amazon and grabbing that book locally. They really would appreciate it. And one other disclaimer, anytime we text, we have to let you know, text messages, data rates, all of that can apply. You can opt out of receiving texts at any time by replying stop to any messages you receive. So with that, on to today's episode. So this clip comes to us from Henner Gracie, author of The 32 Principles, also member of the family that brought jiu-jitsu to America. So his uncle, Hoist Gracie, won some of the early UFCs. But what I love is he talks about in this clip, the clock principle. And there's a really cool story that he shares to go along with it. Check it out. Let's start with the clock principle because it's a crazy story, dude. So the clock principle okay. teaches and, and identifies the significance of timing. The right move at the wrong time is the wrong move. This is as true in jujitsu as it is in every aspect of life. So we had a situation where about 10 years ago, I'm teaching 
you know, five, 10 hours a day. It's full time for me at that time. And I had a student who was a psychologist and this psychologist student said to me, Henry, I have a, a, a patient of hers. She said, Henry, I have a patient who suffers from the most severe case of social anxiety that I've ever dealt with as a doctor. And I think jujitsu would be beneficial for him, but I'm not sure I can get him in here. But if we can, I think it'll change his life. And for this sake of this discussion, we'll call this student's name is Shane. So anyways, I speak to the student's mother and I say, look, let's do this. Bring him in. If you can just get him here, I'll take care of the rest. And she says, Henry, I can drive him there. I just don't know if you can get him in the building. So she pulls up in front of the building. She parks outside of our right there in our parking lot. And she says, Henry, I'm sorry, he's out here, but I can't get him in. He's not going to get out of the car. And in my mind, I'm literally thinking at this point, I could cooperate and say, okay, I'm sorry, it didn't work out. You know, when he's ready, let me know, which means what? I'll never see him again. Or I can go figure this out. And Brad, I've never dealt with this in my life. I've had kids cry in their first class. And then I make a clown and I let them jump on my back and they love me after. Never like this. So I go outside as I approach the car. The windows are cracked open. He's sitting in the back passenger side seat. And I hear hysterical crying like you've never seen. Like someone in your family has died and you're hyperventilating and crying, heavy breathing. This is what I'm hearing as I'm approaching the car on foot. So the mom is standing outside the car, helpless, like there's no way we're doing this. And I just signaled to her. I said, and she said, yeah, go ahead. So I go around. I get in the backseat. I sit down next to this young man who's about 16 years old, by the way, to give you fun. He's a high school student. I sit down next to him and he's doing this. He's bending over, crying. And I'm just getting in the car. didn't say a word. 20. 30 minutes had passed. He finally slowed down, starts sitting up quietly. He's just breathing now. He's not crying. I said, what's up, Shane? I'm Henner. What do you like to do for fun? Video games? They're cool. Which one? Random conversation. Another 15, 20 minutes passes. And I said, Shane, here's the deal. I'm really happy to meet you. I'd like to take you inside, give you a tour of our our facility. It's really beautiful. I think you'll love it. Just want to show you around. What do you think? We get out of the car. Mom is standing outside this whole time. We walk together. I'm in my jujitsu gi. He's wearing regular clothes. We walk into the building. I'm walking him around. And Brad, all I'm saying to myself is, if I can get this guy to step on the mat, he's mine. Mm-hmm. We're walking around the building, locker room, museum, grandfather, legacy, beautiful facility, right? You guys all, all of you are invited. Torrance, California, Gracie University. Just something, you wouldn't expect this to be a martial arts facility. It feels like a country club you know, Ritz Carlton type thing, spa. So we walk and we, we, we really try hard to make it a unique student experience. So I'm walking this guy around and then I say, hey, and check this out. We have a private training room. We have two private rooms at this old school. I opened it. I pushed the door open. I said, Sean, you really got to check this out. The mats in here are really soft. Come on in so you can feel. He had shoes on. I said, take your shoes off so you can feel how soft the mats are. He steps in. I say to his mom, come on in. I shut the door. They're on the mat with me. I say, have a seat right here, bud. We sit down together. His mom sits in the corner. And by this time, there's enough connection that we're, we're doing okay. And I say, why don't you lay on your back right here, Shane? I get on top of him. He lets me. And then I say, how would you get out? Very conversational. Where there's a relationship now. There's trust. Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 boom. He tries to get out. He's like, oh, I'd push you off. I would do this. I would do that. I say, let me, sh- let me show you. I switch. I'd show him the move. Oh, that's cool. He does it. I do it. He does it. I do it. Another hour passes. We do a whole jujitsu class in this room, having the best time, laughing, learning submissions, learning escapes. His mom is in the corner weeping. Mm. I just peek over to see she's over here. We become best friends in there, bro. We had the best time. 
I leave the class, send him out. Thanks for coming. You guys amazing. We'll see you next week. All good. The next time he came to class, it only took me 20 minutes to get him into the, into the building. And then each time after that, less time and less time. Eventually, I handed him off to another instructor. He started doing group classes. He graduated high school, went to college on his own. Life went on for the kid. The right move at the wrong time is the wrong move. The patience to know that I needed to get him on the mat, but it wasn't going to happen on my clock was the perfect application of the clock principle. What Again, a scenario I'd never been in face with and a solution that I had never crafted before. But what I knew is that if there was love leading the way, if I was leading with love, that I really wanted to help him. And I knew that I was the solution. Jiu-jitsu was the solution to his social anxiety. I knew it. There was no way I wasn't going to figure this out. And in that moment, jujitsu principle that I had applied a thousand times in a fight, which is wait for the right time. The technique will be there when you need it to be there. The opportunity will present itself. That's what that was. The highest level of patience, the highest level of consideration, and the highest level of trust that ultimately the truth would prevail. He needs jujitsu, and I wouldn't stop at nothing to help him with jujitsu. So those two, if given time, would be successful, and it was, bro. And today, he's a different man because of it. And it all changed because I looked at When she said, Henry, he's not coming in, I could have said, okay. Or I said, no, no, no. New problem. Guess what? New solution. Which solution? I don't even know what the solution is. I just know that jujitsu will guide me. And it worked out. I snuck him on the mat. Hey, come feel these with your shoes off. It was the ultimate. <laughs> so I was proud of that's that. Such, that's such a cool story, Henner. What it makes me think of is just uh, Tony Robbins talks about something called a pattern interrupt. And with you just sitting down in the car, while well, he's, I'm sure every single time he threw one of these massive fits, of course, everybody's sitting there like fighting it, like calm down, calm down. And you literally just sat there and sat in it with him until he wore himself out. And I'm assuming like that applies perfectly to jujitsu. I mean, Bro, because every day, he, yeah, where you've got somebody that's a big, strong dude, just fully flexed and you're sitting there just kind of riding it out until that opening appears, which is essentially what you did in that situation. Yeah. And here's what, what it is, what, Brad, is that you're absolutely right about jujitsu is that the reality in this moment right now, let's call it this present reality. Let's say I can't escape from underneath you 30 seconds later. You're changing your behavior. I'm changing my behavior. You're changing your priorities. There is no consistent repetition of the present moment. It's always every shift in a fight is a new moment, is a new encounter, is a new engagement. So I just trusted that, yeah, it's not ideal right now, but that doesn't mean the ideal opportunity won't arrive. I had faith. And so many people in that same situation go, well, if it's not perfect right now, there's no reason for me to believe it'll be any different 10, 20, 30 minutes from now. But jujitsu has taught me absolutely the opposite. If it's not the current circumstances that you need and want right now, just let time do its thing. Sometimes time is the only ally that you need. And enough passing time, the exact same, right? So when you think about the business application of this, right, you might think you have the product, a service that you want to bring to market. If it's not the right time right now, doesn't mean there's something wrong with the product. It means it's wrong with the market opportunity. So maybe it's just a matter of waiting it out or sometimes speeding it up. You have to rush the attack because you know that the less than desirable time will be six months from now. So you rush it right now before the right the economic downturn that you know is pending. So you launch earlier than you expected. So timing is everything. And the clock principle and many others were actually of the 32 principles lean on this idea that, man, it just because it's not perfect doesn't mean it won't be.
Okay, this next clip comes to us from Michael Kitsis. And in my conversation with him, we covered a lot of ground. But I love this specific clip on how building a financial plan has evolved in finance over the last decade or two, where it's transitioned from a really big binder to a one-page financial plan. Here, Michael's take on that now. A lot of advisors way back when they didn't do the best job at building a financial plan. And part of that was it was dependent on the school of finance that you grew up in. Uh-huh. But there, then there became an evolution of <clears throat> this leather bound binder. And it almost became like this race to who could build the thickest, most yeah. data dense financial plan with all the charts and graphs yeah. and, and backing up all here yeah. me this money because I'm doing such, you know, amazing planning. And now what I've started to see, and I know we have a mutual friend in Carl Richards who wrote a book called The One-Page Financial Plan. Um, Now we're almost starting to see it revert back the other way. And it's how can we simplify the complexity? And, you know, if you're building on a CFP standard income, investments, taxes, healthcare, legacy estate, you know, all the worlds that that encompasses, that's a lot. But it's almost reverting back to can I get this complexity onto one page where it's simple and it makes sense to somebody that's like a fifth grader? So that's a really big topic. Let's just riff on that. What are your thoughts? What trends do you see? There's a really cool Twitter thread out there on like the best one page financial plans. Yeah. Um, let's dive in on that topic. So so here's how I, how I would think about it from just sort of the, the advisor value proposition level. The the big plan, the big plan, right? The big, big, beautiful leatherbound plan, to me, what was fundamentally about selling this value proposition of I'm smart, I've got expertise. Like you don't know financial things, I know financial things. I'm the expert. You pay me money as the expert. I do the analysis you literally can't do by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I will bring you the results of this analysis of your very complex situation and provide you a series of recommendations. And, and just, it, it, that's like, that's fundamentally a, a, an expert transaction. And I think a, like a pretty good solid one from that, that perspective, right? In that domain, basically like the better the advisor, the thicker the plan, or more directly, like the better the advisor, the longer the list of financial planning recommendations I can give you, right? Like, a good financial advisor can analyze this client and find eight recommendations. A great financial advisor can analyze the same client and find 13 recommendations. And then a, a fantastic leading financial advisor can take the same client's information and find 19 different financial planning recommendations that would add value in this client's life. Mm-hmm. And it was all built around the depth of expertise and our ability to show the expertise. The fundamental thing that I think is, is shifting now is that the value equation is beginning to shift a little. We do still need to have the expertise, right? I'll just like say that out of the gate. Like you do still need to have the expertise. Otherwise you're just giving recommendations that could be actually factually wrong and then people just get hurt out of ignorance. So the relevance of expertise doesn't go away. But we can't just be dispensers of expert information anymore because if you really just want expert information, if you want to ask a complex question and get get an answer to it, the internet's good at that. Apparently, pretty soon, ChatGPT is going to be good at that. Like, computers are good at spitting out the answers to questions. And the the fundamental shift I think that's happening now is 
we're not just going to get paid based on having the answer. We're going to get paid to help clients implement the answer. Now, a lot of us historically have said, well, yeah, I do implementation. In fact, the roots of our industry was all about implementation because it was the insurance and investment product that we implemented that we got paid for to make the financial plan uh, economically viable for us to deliver. But we, to me, we kind of had this breakdown that when planning went towards expertise complexity and the plans got longer, right, the difference between a, 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 an okay planner, a great planner, and an amazing planner was whether you found like eight or 13 or 19 financial planning recommendations for the client. But if you think about that from the client's perspective, like, you know what you do as a client when someone comes at you with 19 financial planning recommendations to add value in your financial life? You don't look at them and think, wow, that person is brilliant. Look at all the recommendations they came up with. The script in most clients has more something more along the lines of, wow, I didn't realize my life was that screwed up. Like, I didn't even know. I mean, I came to an advisor because I was not confident in my financial uh, planning decisions in life. That's why I sought an advisor. But I actually didn't know I could make 19 different mistakes at once. Like, apparently, I'm so bad at this. I may as well just give up on financial life now. Like, I, you know, 19 recommendations basically means I get an F in life at this point. And it's just depressing. Like, it, I mean, it's just, it's outright depressing for clients to come at them with that many recommendations. It, it's demotivating and can be outright destructive because people just look at that and say, wow, like I'm basically a lost cause. I didn't even know I could do that many things wrong. But like, why even bother at this point? Imagine a world where the primary way that an advisor is evaluated is the percentage of the financial planning recommendations that their clients actually implement. The percentage of financial planning recommendations that your clients actually implement. So you don't get credit for giving them a list of 19 and then having them be so overwhelmed that they leave and walk out the door. Giving them three that are meaningful and having to actually implement three is way better. Because frankly, if they wanted the list of 19, they could probably at some point give their situation artificial intelligence and it'll list out 19 things that they could be doing differently. But again, that's just demotivating. Mm -hmm. If I want to get to what what do I actually do to implement this? How do I get to a decision I'm comfortable with, have buy and feel motivation to follow through on the recommendation and actually take action to implement it? It's an entirely different skill set and to say the least, what it starts with is not coming to the table with 19 financial planning recommendations and a 172-page financial plan, because that's just setting up the overwhelm, I'm just so far gone, I may as well give up on this. And that, to me, is really the essence of what's coming forth in these one-page financial plans. Like It's not just about simplifying down and getting it all to one page. The common theme that I see on most of those one-page plans comes down to, to sort of three core elements. One of the most interesting things to me about almost every one-page plan that I see, it's got action items. It's got next steps, not 19 planning recommendations. The three or fewer that we're working on right now, and then every time we update that one-pager, they they change as we check things off the list and bring new things into the picture. And so that combination of sense of purpose, sense of progress, and what are our next steps? Like those are the elements 
that drive action, that drive behavior change. Like you can do it. Here's why you're doing it. You are already succeeding and making progress. Here's the thing that we're going to tackle next. And as we check that off, it feels really good. And then we want to do more and we, and we continue the momentum. And so the essence to me of what you're seeing, like, yes, one page plan is neat in and of itself. And, and I love some of the beautiful ones that people have put out there. But the real thing to me that's happening underneath is we're beginning this shift from my value is I give you this expertise, which I demonstrate through the length of the plan and the weight of the plan and the volume of financial planning recommendations. And we're moving into a realm where we're judged by action and implementation and the tools to help people take action are not the same as the tools that are built just to show our expertise. And so the expertise still has to be there. Even most advisors that I know that are doing one-page financial plans, like the rest of the financial plan is still there. Like it's still in the software. They may still print it. It's like a one-page plan with a 50-page technical appendix behind it because we do have to still, I think, just from the advisor, we have to show our expertise at some point. Otherwise, like I can write all of, I can write all of your financial planning recommendations on three by five index card. But if I actually give it to you as a three by five index card, you're going to assume I didn't even do the work and you're not going to take the recommendations because they're not credible, even though they actually really might be the right thing to do. So there is still a need that I think we have to demonstrate credibility and to demonstrate our expertise and to show that when I give you this short list of things to do, it's because there's many, many, many pages of work and analysis that went into this. But the essence, I think, of the shift that you're seeing is when you start driving towards questions like, how do you maximize the number of recommendations that the client actually implements? You don't give them a list of 19 action items to implement. All right, this next clip comes to us from Chris Smith, who I've had a number of conversations with. He is a strategic partner here at Triad. And what I love about Chris, he knows financial services really in depth. He grew up in financial services, but he absolutely has a way with words. But in this clip, we talk about more of a mindset and what it means to be bold when it comes to leadership as a financial advisor. And I know a number of Triad members have utilized this specific concept to really revolutionize their appointment process. Check it out. You can get advice anywhere. But what's really rare, especially in the world we live in today, I think is leadership. And people are desperately searching for leadership now more than ever. And so we've had so much success and, and helped firms have success by just starting to actually change the way they see themselves is like, yeah, we're not advisors giving advice. That's part of what we do, but we're really leaders providing leadership. And so that's the first place that I would actually, that, that I would start, that we do start, is we have a conversation around identity. And a lot of times advisors are like, well, I thought we were going to talk about messaging. I thought we were going to talk about like taglines, and elevator pitches and presentations. It's like, yeah, we'll get to that. But all of that is actually driven by your identity. Yeah. If you want it to matter, if you want it to be sustainable, if you want to stand out, if we can have this deeper conversation around identity, like who are you? What do you want to be known for? What do you stand for? And how do we create in your organization this culture of leadership? Because if you can change the way you see yourself, you start to show up that way more. And you start to be experienced as a more confident, bold leader. Because look, I just don't think that most prospective clients going to sit down with an advisor, I don't think the reason they're there is for advice. They could get that anywhere. And they don't even know it, but the reason they're there is they're looking for leadership. They're really looking for someone to guide them and their family. 
that's really what this is about for me is we have to help them first change the way they see themselves. And I think that's a massive opportunity in this industry is to realize like we're in an industry that can have a profound impact on people's lives for generations. And I think sometimes we don't see it that way. So much there. (laughs) So spot on. I completely agree with that. To me, the word that comes up is a belief. Like leadership takes a belief system that you then inspire other people to follow that. And you just brought one of my favorite people in the world and a a client that their firm will bring in north of 200 million this year. So, I mean, when you look at the numbers, incredibly successful. And we were having this exact same conversation, Chris, the other day. And I see what happens a lot of times is there's this, I call it R&D, rip off and duplicate in our industry. And it's like, oh, you look at one financial advisor's website, they've got XYZ blueprint or, you know, fill in the blank for whatever the name is. Oh, that sounds good. We'll do that too. And it's kind of like if you were going to compete with McDonald's, you're like, oh, we'll sell a Big Mac too. And then you think that differentiates yourself. And the biggest thing I've seen that you just hit, it's one thing to kind of rip off some packaging and, oh, that worked for that firm. So I'll use that too. But then I had this conversation with their team and I said, what's the name of your financial planning process again? And they all looked around the table at each other and they couldn't even remember the name because there was no belief system because they knew it was kind of an imposter that they just kind of ripped off from somebody else and hadn't actually put the thought process into it, how it applied to their firm, how they're different, that belief system, that leadership. I'm curious, you do this work all the time. How frequently do you see that sort of thing play out when you do your work? Oh, yeah. Every time I I got off a call earlier today with an advisor who the name of their planning process is uh, ABC XYZ Lighthouse Blueprint Roadmap. You know, it's just like, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Like it's better than not having a name, right? The problem though, is that most advisors, when they're thinking about standing out, differentiating themselves, it's being driven from a place of what do I think will work? And what do I think will be successful? It's not driven by their identity. Mm. When you start creating identity-driven messaging, when you start creating identity-driven marketing, when you start creating identity-driven culture, when you start creating identity-driven leadership, now you're onto something. Because no one can rip off your identity. There's only one of you. But most of us don't pause long enough to actually go deep enough. And, And to put this in the terms from a planning perspective, it's like no good advisor who's really a leader would sit with someone for 10 minutes and then start making recommendations on right. yep. products or investments. They would spend time really getting to know who that person is, what's most important to them and their family, what their long-term goals are, what their dreams are. Basically, they would uncover that person's identity. Then they would make recommendations in the planning phase that are in alignment with their identity. Well, we know how to do that in planning. We do the exact opposite when it comes to marketing. We just start picking products off the shelf and solutions and start throwing stuff. And it's like, well, if we, did, if we planned first, right? If we did real like true planning and then let that dictate and determine what we choose, it's just more likely to be in alignment. It's driven by our identity. It's the same thing when you go into like, you can go to a lot of firms. I've been into like really large organizations and ask them what their values are. And the core values are written on a wall somewhere in the organization. And not one person can actually tell me without having to go out and look at the wall. It's like, it was a brainstorming, it was a creative brainstorming session exercise that they did. And they landed on some cool sounding values, but it's not who they are. And so, yeah, this is deeper work, right? takes more work, but the sustainability of it, especially if you're a founder of a firm, you now create a situation where you can actually have something that grows beyond you. Yeah. You can actually have something where it can grow while your personal freedom grows. Like, cause most advisors or most founders are like, those are at odds with each other, right? Like if my firm continues to grow, my personal freedom diminishes. 
but it's like, no, you can create something bigger than you. But I think that, you know, and I think it would be interesting if, if you want to, Brad, I think it'd be interesting to like talk about what does this idea of leadership actually mean? Like when we say like, not just being an advisor, but being a leader, but I think that's where it has to start. It's like, this has to be identity driven. Yeah. So let's hit one thought. And then I, I would love to get into some of the verbiage because I know you've got some really cool verbiage and how you start to make that transition from advisor to leader, financial leader in their life. But you just spurred a thought. Michael Hyatt spoke at, he's a fellow strategic partner as well. And uh, I love, by the way, surrounding myself with all stars. It works on the football field. It also works in business. So I'm really uh, thankful that you are aligned with kind of the vision and the journey here. And Michael Hyatt, I remember him saying, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest problems I see in finance, that's kind of a widespread problem is most financial services firms are built on a personality. And I mean, just look at how most financial services firms are named. And this is nothing against any advisor out there. If it's, you know, Joe Smith Financial, that's, that's, that's completely cool. But if the whole value proposition is built on Joe Smith, Joe Smith does not scale. And this is the thing we've talked about, Chris, where it's this tug of war of, well, I want to grow my business, but now I feel like I'm losing my freedom as I grow my business. It's this trade-off. And a lot of what you coach on is once you take and unlock this identity, now it becomes a value proposition that's not dependent on just Joe Smith delivering it, but that can be transferred to the team. And that is what really starts to unlock the scale. So Maybe just freestyle on that thought and give me, give me a download where, where, you, uh, where that really hits home with your work. You will only be able to scale your firm to the size of the identity that surrounds it. So if the identity you've created is no bigger than you, then that's the ceiling at which you can scale to that capacity. So like your ability to scale a business has everything to do with like the identity that it's scaling to. So like you have to create an identity that's bigger than you. You have to create an identity that's bigger than any one person at the firm, right? Because if there's this identity that's created and it was co-created, right, by the team, that's bigger than any one person, then it's like it can grow beyond any one person. But if the identity is really tied mostly to you, you can have some growth of some scale and you can have some team members that support you. But the majority of the weight and the burden of growing it and like coming up with innovative ideas and like scaling it will largely rest on your shoulders. But it is possible to create success beyond yourself, but it has to be an identity that's, that's bigger than you, that's bigger than your biggest producer. Hmm. It has to be an identity that the entire team can see themselves like growing into and like really feeling aligned to like, wow, I'm part of this. And again, it's just not a conversation that's had a lot in this industry. Yeah. You, know, it's, you know, it's like, hey, go be really successful as an advisor yourself. Start to build a small team of people who can support you. Grow that up. Maybe then if you're really lucky, you get one or two other advisors who can start to do some client servicing so you don't have to do as many reviews. And then if you get really, really lucky, one of them can even maybe step in and start taking some client discovery meetings once in a while. So you've scaled out of that. And then that's kind of the dream. Like you'll still do a lot of client discovery meetings. You'll still have a you know handful of client reviews. But it's like, but what if more was possible? Yeah. What if you could have a team of advisors who actually can do all of it? Okay, with this next clip, my business partner, Sean Sparks here at Triad. It was one of the, I believe, the second episode ever recorded on the DBDL podcast. And we talk about what it takes to build and scale a world-class business. And what I love about Sean is he has a way of simplifying the complex. So if you're a financial advisor out there that wants to scale into a business owner, CEO, this is the clip for you. Check it out. 
the characteristics you need for an advisor, everybody thinks they're all the same, an advisor. But some advisors are gifted with different things. So I'll tell you a good example is we've got an advisor, um, amazing person. She at one point was in charge of managing a billion dollars by herself. She had incredible relationships with clients. She was a very high relationship. She was the person that at the end of a call with a client, she'd stop him and say, oh yeah, I was going to ask you, how's your, how are your kids doing? And like, she just loved on them, built relationships. They never wanted to talk to anybody, but her, she was so good. This was a service-based advisor. She loved routine conversations with clients, just loving on them, getting back to them quickly. You know what she didn't like? She said, I'll, I'll work here at this company she was uh, going to work with. She was transitioning and, and she said, but I don't want to be a part of the sales process. Don't make me sell. Wasn't that what she said? Don't make me sell. And they're like, wow, this advisor is knowledgeable. She loves clients, but she didn't like the sales process. Now we got another advisor. This advisor is a great salesperson. He is somebody who that immediately when you're sitting back, you'll sit up. He's got that thing where there's passion or she's got that thing where there's passion. There's knowledge. Taking complex things, make them simple. People immediately trust them. And they're able to actually get people to take action, fix their problems. This advisor is gifted when they're in front of clients and helping them. Oftentimes, this advisor, do you know what they don't like? Routine service calls after the sale. Oh, hey, be sure to call Julie back. It's like they're so mission focused on just helping people and get that sales process down. They don't find joy. They don't, they don't, it's like a side of the desk job. Do you, which one do you think will provide better service to your client? The first one, but they're both advisors. So this goes back to bring a service advisor and try and make them sell. You got to find the right characteristics you're looking for to solve the problem you're in. Those two advisors as a team, fully aligned, will crush it. Incredible service person. The clients don't even want to talk to the main, main person, guy, girl, whatever. And then here's the other thing. Some advisors are very analytical. They are the people that I would say is like they have the coffee mug. I love spreadsheets. And they will analyze every number, do all the research. You could put them in front of a computer all day long and that's their comfort. That's where they're at. That's where they find their fun. I had a friend that was a CPA. He was just really, really smart. He was a whiz and he decided he wanted to be an advisor. And for some reason, he couldn't close a deal. He got into the weeds. So he would be what I consider a very analytical and analyst type advisor. You put him in as your sales advisor, guess what happens? Why is he not bringing people on? He's so smart. You've got to understand that there's three types of advisors. There's those that are really great at service. Those that are really good in front of people with like the sales. Then there's the analytical side. And here was what's funny. Call it the triad advisor model. Triad is when three parties work together. Imagine a team-based approach to where the service people are providing all the service. The salesperson is doing the sales appointments and the pair planner is doing all the plans. As I think about me being a client for an advisor, who do I want to put together my plan? The planning advisor. Who do, I want, who do I want the ongoing service? That guy that calls me or the gal that calls me at the end of the day off the side of their desk just quickly get the job done? Or this person who just loves the communication, the relationship? Which one do you think I want to explain how they can help me? So we call it the triad advisor months where all three work together and they are fully aligned. And I just want you to imagine this, Brad. Imagine those three advisors excited about the mission they're on, working together, protecting each other. And every time something's done, they're high-fiving each other because they work as a team. This whole idea of making businesses based on I and all, it's like the team-based approach is the scale-based approach. Two things. First off, I had the exact same conversation this morning too. So really? on my way to the office, this is a firm that's north of 250 million this year. This was one of the founders. And he goes, man, I hate service work. And 
to your point, he's one of the best naturally gifted salespeople. Like people love him. They trust him. He really is great at simplifying a really complex plan. And I heard it said one time, what if procrastination is the greatest source of wisdom? So for you as an advisor out there that's listening, if you are that advisor that has the stack of papers sitting on your desk that never go away because you procrastinate, it's probably service work which probably means you're doing service advisor work as a selling advisor. It's so common. We see it all the time. But what you just explained that those three that we'll call it a triad, we like threes around here, those three right there, that's what unlocks the freedom. Because now I can sell. I love it. I love to meet new people. I love to see the breakthroughs, the ahas, but I hate the follow through. Well, guess what your clients hate is when you promise something and it doesn't happen. But now when you're side by side, it's like, I look at it like a relay race, like handing the baton. Now you're passing the baton to service. Service is coordinating with planning. We had one, an incredible advisor. I think she was doing north of 50 mil. She didn't even know what a pair planner was. So like just this, I think, I think just the education piece of it. Yeah. What we're doing is we're moving from a jack of all trades. One advisor does everything to specialist model, which is scale. As you evolve, you must move to specialization. We're grabbing three different types of advisors in this case, all working together as one team aligned with conviction. And we're putting a process in place in order to make it just really be an incredible experience. Here's what's funny. Not only is this best for the clients, not only is this best for the advisor because they can specialize and do what they love, but this model creates more referrals than you could ever imagine. Guess whose job it is to invite referrals to the events and to bring referrals? It's the relationship person who had the extra time to get to know them and have the relationship. And I'm like, it is like the trifecta model to scale your time to where you do the appointments because you love it, you enjoy it, you do none of the service work, so your bandwidth as an individual just got cut in half, maybe even more. And then you've got this team that's all smiling and high-fiving itself, working together, doing what they each love. The outcome is your business overall is built better and your clients are giving you referrals and they're not giving them to you. They're probably giving them to that relationship person, you know, the service advisor. So this is key, leveraging your time and putting those around you. It's a team-based approach to create a better output for, you know, the clients. You hit one thing and there's actually another benefit I just thought of. So number one, you're creating career tracks for different types of advisors and personalities. So to your point, now the team's excited. Now there's more that goes into it. We don't have time today, but obviously you need to align compensation. So there's a whole model that goes along with that. But uh, the other thing that I really think about is what you've also created is the track, the client experience, but now you've unlocked this whole nother potential, which is now that advisor can go, the founding advisor has freedom of time. If they're just selling, not servicing, not planning, we've had advisors bump the net worth up of who they see. We've had advisors go be the seminar face of the company, the head of the marketing, and now they can explore those greater strengths as well. So there's a, a lot of different things that so opens the, up. The the sales side, just for the sake of time, there are a lot of limiting beliefs that keep people from doing this. If I bring the client on, then I've got to do all everything at the end. Your clients, this is a complete limiting belief. Your clients want the best possible experience. They, most of them are business owners. Business owners understand how things work, but you've got to set the right expectation on the front end to where they say, heck yeah, I love this. Versus you carrying the weight of the I. This goes back to the advisor in charge model. If you put I in the equation, you're hurting your, your growth pattern. You're hurting your potential. So put us, put we, and then have all of it centered around what your clients want 
deserve and how to manufacture a better experience for them. That's how you have a business that's getting high value referrals because it's a team-based approach. So this is what I would say is the scalable sales side. It's just some keys to it. There are a lot of like processes built in and so on, but looking at your business, your sales side as this will increase the, the chances of success and, and uh, scale. All right, my man. We've got 10 left here and we've got so much to cover. So we might have to, who knows? We've got plenty of time to do a part two. So, all right. So we've got vision, marketing, sales. Let's hit the two real quick. And then let's give like, just let's make sure we give them a little bridge into phase two of the phases of scale. Yep, it'll wrap up. So the fourth of the five pillars is operations. Now, advisors, just the nature of who they are, they like the marketing side usually, and they love the sales side. And sometimes they love marketing and, and vice versa, but just the way that, that we are, I think a lot of us don't see, like, enjoy the operations piece, which is represented by about everything else. It's the process in the business. It's the, um, to, to scale, there's probably 10,000 different processes. All these little things that happen to where it's like clockwork. This is what the roadmap like is about. It's like having these processes handed to you where your team can adopt, you know, what's happening before appointments, after appointments, what's the whole process working together as a team. But I would say the operations piece is one of the biggest missing ingredients. Having somebody who can execute as opposed to just big ideas, having somebody follow through and make sure things get done, which increases the chance of progressing towards the right path. So, most advisors are really good at marketing and sales. They miss the operations piece. And then the bigger they get, the more toxic the business gets, the more opportunities they're missing right in front of them because they don't have the time. So that operations side, it's understanding the chokehold spots in your business and fixing them in an operational view and way. But operations is critically important. It's what I would say is kind of the launch pad that allow you to keep progressing. And most most advisors tend to to not like it, enjoy it, know how to do it. If I were to tell you like, hey, put together an operations manual or most advisors, they'll go right down on one page and say, what do I do next? It's just not the same type of um, person. So operations is critically important. Having that, that's the fourth um, pillar. In this next clip, we feature Dave Zoller, who's a good friend, also a trailblazer in the world of finance. He has driven almost exclusively all of his new clients through his YouTube channel. So if you're out there as an advisor looking how to blow up YouTube or start on YouTube, you'll definitely want to check out this next clip. Collectively, between Dave's two primary channels, he has almost 50,000 subscribers, millions of views between the two of them. Check out this clip when it comes to producing great content on YouTube. The first video I did that I wanted to do well, I knew that it was going to be bad and I knew that was uh, going to be embarrassing. I actually talked about this at Jolt when I was uh, did the talk and there were three things that were barriers for me to even get started. And I think that it's probably everybody out there, or at least advisors. One of them is, um, so we're advisors and we're, we're pretty smart, right? We've got this financial expertise or expertise in some area. And we might be at the top of our game, and it's really difficult to go back to the beginner mindset and to do something mm-hmm. where you're a complete newbie and you kind of stink at it. And, and I think you just you have to be able to do that. It's an ego, right? I had it. I had trouble. I was embarrassed. And I, I was worried more about advisors criticizing me than anybody else, you know, watching the video. 
maybe it's just me, but that's the way that I felt when when I was I was doing that. It was that ego and going back to the beginner's mind and just being bad, blowing through that. The thing that helped was really focusing on the person that I'm trying to help. Like if you're coming at it from a place of generosity and giving and wanting to help people and not a place of doing something for a return expected or for some sort of ROI, if you're going into it to get a hundred views, the first video or a thousand views, or if you're going into it to, to do three videos and get a client from those three videos, you're probably going to fail. There may be our case studies out there where people are able to do that. But if you can go into it instead from a place of service and just looking to help, we already know the more value that you put out into the world, the more will come back to you. Most likely, not always, but a lot of times it does. That's what I started doing. And I kind of forgot about the ego. But that first video that I did, I was talking about tax content, tax planning things back then. And it was around, I think it was like using Spotify for business and being able to deduct the cost. Like, do companies get to do that if they've got a lobby that's playing music or a store or something like that? So I was talking about that. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments was legal related. Uh, Spotify, I think it was an attorney. And it was like kind of scary. And it was like a negative comment. It was like, it reminded me of this thing that I keep hearing, which is whenever you have an intention to do something, disruption always follows intention, right? Whenever you're trying to, if you set your mind on something and you start moving forward, a lot of times there's going to be something that blocks you from doing it. So as long as we have that in our mind and remember that and just know that disruptions are going to come or block, you know, things are going to block us, it's easier to keep moving forward and, and iterating and trying again. So that was the first video. And it was like this, to me, it's not a big deal at all. But to me, it was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not putting any more right. out there like this. But uh, I, I was able to get past that and then keep going. And then it, it's paid off since then. There's so much good advice right there. Um, and, and so much of that advice is very similar to my own journey podcasting. I want to just pull a couple things out of that. The first one, the thing about doing it for others and not yourself. I did an episode with a guy named John Israel on my, on my prior show. He wrote a book called Mr. Thank You. And you reminded me of something he shared with me. So he wrote five handwritten thank yous a day for an entire year wow. and mailed these out. And that, that book's incredible. And his, his episode was incredible. It was one of my top downloaded ever. And he shared exactly what you just shared. He said, originally, like the first month or two of that journey, he started getting disappointed because he's dropping five handwritten thank you notes mm -hmm. in the mail every day. And he might get like a little text or, you know, a note back, you know, every other week. And he's like, man, are these, am I not writing these right? Are these mm -hmm. people not getting my thank yous? Are they getting lost in the mail? And he goes, I realized I had focused on the wrong intention in these thank yous. I was making it about me as opposed to about them. And he's like, I realized I can just send gratitude out. And if yeah. I expect nothing in return, if it, it actually, it, it's like a freeing feeling. And yes. what you just said on, you shared this when we were kind of prepping for this conversation, you said, Hey, you know, I might've had like five, 10, 15 views on those first videos. And the mindset you went into is if just one of those viewers, I help them on their retirement journey. Mm -hmm. I'm going to consider that a win. And I'm going to mm -hmm. consider that that video was worth doing and putting on the internet. And I love that yes. because the truth is when you start a podcast, when you start a YouTube channel, 
basically you don't have any viewers except maybe your mom, if you're lucky. Yep. Right. Yeah. And one piece of uh, advice that was given me on the podcast is don't do your first episode if you don't plan on doing your hundredth. It's the long game. It's the consistency. It's continuing to show up. And by the way, the first, I remember when I listened to my first podcast episode, I'm like, is it possible for a human to say the word so that many times in a five minute span? You know, all your little verbal tics, all. Yeah. yeah. It's scary to listen yes. to yourself and realize, wow, like I've got these little mannerisms I didn't even realize I have. But because of that, you get better and you put in the reps, just like anything in life. And you evolve and you level up and you go from beginner. It's actually, hey, these videos are starting to get pretty polished. All right. This next clip comes to us from Wall Street Journal bestseller, Joey Coleman. His most recent book, Never Lose an Employee Again. We actually get into what statistically is the cost of losing an employee, the math. And I will tell you, this was the most viral clip of all of the DBDL podcast. I believe on Instagram, it had over a quarter of a million views as Joey unpacked the statistics and the why behind the extensive cost of losing and replacing an employee. I know this is a big thing in finance, so you'll want to check out this clip. Check it out. Depending on whether someone is hourly or salary, Somewhere between 20 and 60% of new hires quit in the first 100 days. I'm going to let that just whoa, sink whoa. in for a second. Whoa, whoa, hold up. Yeah, yeah. 20 to 60%? 20 to 60% of new days? hires quit in the first 100 days, depending on wow. your industry and depending on their role. So we already can see the size of the problem is enormous. You have huge numbers of people running out the back door before you've even fully completed bringing them in the front door. In fact, one of the most staggering stats I came across is 4%. 4% of employees show up for the first day on the work. They do the first day at the work or you know at the job. They go home that night and they don't come back for day two. 4%. Now, here's the interesting thing and why I'm okay sharing that stat with a bunch of advisors listening in. You know that 4%, oh, that seems like a little, little number, Joey. No, 4% is a gigantic number when you think about all the time and effort it takes to get a new employee in the door. All the money you spend recruiting, hiring, going through the interview process, bringing them on board, training, planning the first day. And that's 4% are leaving after day one. These are huge problems. When we turn around and we look at how much does it cost to replace an existing employee? We looked at studies from around the world, and what we found is on average, it's somewhere between 100 and 300% of that employee's salary to get a new person in the role. So let's say you're hiring a $50,000 role. It's going to cost somewhere between $50,000 and $150,000 to get a new candidate into that role if that first person leaves, and that's before you start paying their salary. So that's independent of their salary. That's well, that's what I was about to ask you. So that's let's just say fifty thousand dollar I'm gonna say team member because employees I love it. I love it. So fifty fifty thousand team member, fifty thousand dollar team member annual salary leaves. We just simply replaced with another fifty thousand dollar salaried team member, excluding the apples to apples there, fifty to a hundred and fifty on top of that to replace. Correct. Can you break that down? Help me understand. <laughs> yeah, some people math. are like, wait a second, Joey. That's got to be, that, you know, this is fake news. This is made up math. What are you talking about, Joey? Here's the thing. 
most businesses fail to accurately track, measure, or value the time it takes to identify, interview, and onboard a new employee. So part of that fifty dollars to $150,000 is whoever is in charge of hiring the time they're going to spend on this project that isn't tracked. So if you're the leader, you're the owner, and it's like, great, you're going to have to sit through four or five hour interviews. Awesome. What's your effective hourly rate? And by the way, what is the staff's rate who, or the team member's rate who is figuring out, okay, let's get the resumes in. Let's go through the interview process, not to mention the cost of doing advertisements, not to mention all the things that we're going to have to potentially adjust. But here's the real kicker, Brad. When we have a team member leave and other team members need to fill in the gap while we're waiting to hire that new person, this is how it works at most organizations. Hey, Brad, look, I'm really sorry that Luann resigned, but you do kind of the same job she does. So what we're going to need to do just for a while while we find someone to replace Luann is we're going to need you to do her work too. You're not going to get a bump in title or salary. We're just going to need to have you. Don't worry. We're going to spread this across three or four of you that are kind of doing the same job. But uh, don't worry about that. We're going to get a new person in the seat as quickly as possible. That conversation is happening in every organization on the planet every single day. But we don't stop to realize, how did that just impact Brad's productivity? How did that impact the profit of the organization and the efficiency of the organization now that Brad's energy and effort is diffused across his work as well as what was formerly Luann's work? Number two, what missed opportunities are we getting that we could have had if Brad would have been able to be focused on what he was doing instead of doing multiple jobs? And number three, what are we doing when Brad goes home that night? and says to his roommate, his significant other, his partner, yeah, so Luann was only here for three weeks and she quit. What do you think that she knew that I don't know? Maybe I should be thinking about quitting too. And when we factor all these things into play, that's how we get 100 to 300% of the cost of the salary of the new hire is what it costs us to get someone new into that space. So before we've even had the conversation of who's the new person going to be, we're losing money. Last thing I'll say on this, because you know I like to geek out on the stats and on the numbers. The Department of Labor here in the United States, and we've seen this data matched globally, just in case anybody's outside the U.S. listening to this. The Department of Labor did some research where they went to employees and they asked them, did you participate in a strong onboarding program when you were a new employee. That's all they said. Self-define the word strong, self-define the word onboarding. But do you feel you participated in a strong onboarding program? Yes or no? Of the people that said yes, 69% had been with that organization for more than three years. So this goes directly to the question you were asking. If we focus on that first 100 days, we are extending the total time that an employee will stay, as well as their productivity. They also found some research that was commissioned by Glassdoor that it's an 82% increase in productivity and a 70% increase in retention if an employee feels that it was a strong onboarding program. So it's really about focusing on those first 100 days. You get increased productivity, increased engagement, 
increased retention, which as we've seen from that 100 to 300% cost metric, that allows you to weather that storm financially while also extending the relationship with that new hire. Do you happen to remember the stat? So you said, if they said, yes, it was a strong onboarding experience, they were there on average three years. If they said no, do you have that statistic or did it just... So regrettably, the study didn't share that, right? It didn't share what that number is. But what we do know is that somewhere between 20 and 60% are leaving in the first 100 days. Those are folks Mm -hmm. who don't have a strong onboarding program, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that people churn quickly. Only about 50% of new hires will make the one-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. Only about 50%. And if you are facing that kind of regular churn, The impact that is having on your productivity, the impact is having on your profitability, the impact that is having on your morale is absolutely devastating to an organization. This clip comes to us from the one and only Simon Bowen. I know on my old show, The Elite Advisor Blueprint, the new show, Do Business, Do Life, his episodes consistently ranked in my top one or two downloaded of all time. It's because he gets into whiteboarding, aka visual models, and how that works in explaining concept concepts and simplifying them, which is obviously a lot of what we do in finance. But this specific clip talks about when you face objections in a meeting, what to do instead when it comes to visual models to co-create something together. So stick around for the next couple minutes to learn what to do. When you have two people in a complex conversation, and let's say we've got you, the advisor on one side, you have your truth. And your truth is we need to manage these five worlds and we've got to do things in these five worlds to, to, to make sure they're squared away. And uh, the customer uh, on the other side over here who, who isn't in an ideal spot right now, and if they were, they wouldn't be talking to you. So there's something going on for them, right? And they have their truth. And their truth, they don't care about the five worlds. They're interested in their one world, which is actually all about them and the future, their future world. The only reason someone would be speaking to an advisor was because they're worried about their future world. There might be five dimensions or five storylines in that future world, but they're worried about their future world. So they have their truth. And What we tend to do in verbal-only kind of communication is we push our story towards the other person. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. We've got these five worlds. But if five worlds is really, you know, just an advisor's way of trying to frame this thing so that people can understand it, I've never heard any client of financial planning talk about five worlds until an advisor gives them that language, right? They're just interested in, What's my future look like? That's that's the only world. Will I have enough money in retirement, right? Is my family going to be protected? And um, what if I get sick or infirm? It's all one thing, which is the future. But when we push something towards somebody, we are all hardwired to push back. It's how the human being survives the world. And so there's this kind of almost conflict. It's a I call it a compete and retreat conversation. We're, we're, we're competing for perspective, and we're pushing and retreating from that conversation. That's the typical sales dialogue. 
that's going on. But what we do in order to manage conflict or difference in perspective and things like that is we put an umpire between the two. So every pair, every couple with children understands this to be true because they're usually the umpire when two of their kids are in this compete and retreat tussle, right? But when there's conflict, we usually put a mediator in play. And so the mediator goes to, in every conversation, there's a weaker party. And the weaker party is the one that has less information and has a higher emotional investment. So the person with the least emotional investment in a relationship is in control. And in this case, the client has the higher emotional investment because they're worried about their future, but they don't have all the information. So a good mediator will go to the weaker party and ask them what's going on for them. And then the weaker party might share some of the things they're concerned about. And then a good mediator will go to the party with the information and in a stronger position, and they'll inform them or give them some intel on what the other person's concerned about and thinking about. And then the stronger party can share some insights and go, well, how about this? And then the mediator can share that, but a good mediator will share it by asking more questions and getting them to think more expansively. And so the mediator allows us to gather more intel and share more insights. And when we do that, we elevate the conversation. When we elevate the conversation, we elevate value that goes with the conversation. And this is called the coaching triad. Every coach, every psychologist, every counsellor understands the triad, right? We like well, triads around here, Simon. So you're good. We like triads around here, so you're perfect. Yeah, right yeah, on point. It's a great name, right? It's yeah. the coaching triad, right? And so what you get is this interesting mix of it can help discovery on this side and help selling or influencing on the other side. But you can't take a mediator into a sales conversation with you. And so what I discovered was that if we put a model between two people, the model becomes the mediator. And now the the person who's leading the conversation, this person, is actually using the model to ask the questions. And the customer shares back into the model and says, well, what about that bit there? And now we've got some intel that says, oh, you're interested in this specific piece. That's good to know. Here's some insights around that specific piece. Here's three things that you need to have to make that work. Well, what about that little piece there? How does that work? Oh, interesting intel. Here's two things that we do to protect you in there. And so the model becomes the mediator. The value increases. And now instead of being in a compete and retreat push-pull conversation, we're side by side working on the model, standing at the whiteboard together, the physical dynamic of the conversations change. We're now side by side working on something between us. And the thing we're working on is a natural mediator because we're drawing their future for them. And when people can visualize their future, everything changes. If we're just speaking their future for them, that's our story of the five worlds that we're sharing with them as opposed to drawing their future for them. And I know that financial planners talk about the five worlds, Brad, but there's only one world, and that's their future world. And we, we talked about this in a previous podcast, you know, the futures model is everybody wants the genius model that we help them build, but actually my favorite model is the futures model. It's just a ridiculously powerful conversation to be having with people because you're talking about their future, their world, and you can talk about five different storylines into the future and things like that. But 
they really only care about their future and, and we could draw it again, but we've already done. Yeah. Let's. Uh, so for time's sake, Simon, the future's model, I'm just going to, I'm going to brag on it. So you don't have to, we did have that conversation. It was during COVID. So what a perfect time because everybody was trying to figure out how to communicate via zoom and you were kind enough to hop on. And I'll tell you the power of that. I had an advisor in Sweden of all places reach out to me on Facebook. And he's like, that model, that one model, that futures model, Simon shared. And all he was doing was kind of trying to recreate it off of the video that, you know, the 10 minute conversation where we covered it. And it helped him close a $10 million client. I don't know if I ever told you that story, but that's the power of it. And he said, it just simplified everything. This guy was procrastinating and it helped me in a very simple visual way, helped to help me get him to a decision point. And so we're not going to reshare it today. If you're listening in, Simon's kind enough. We kind of clipped that section out of a prior conversation. Just reply back to however you got this, whether it's a DM on social, we'll make that a deliverable that we'll share out so we can kind of save everybody some time here. This clip comes to us from Taylor Schulte. Many of you out there in finance know him from either his podcast or potentially from AGC, a community of advisors that he runs. But specifically, what we cover in this clip is how he almost exclusively used his podcast to drive all new client acquisition over the last year. And not only how he did that, but also his new client engagement process that allows a partnership where you clearly talk about, here's what Taylor's firm is going to do for you. And here are the expectations that you have as a client if this is going to be a fit. This is one of the top downloaded episodes, as well as one of the top downloaded tools all of last year. Check it out. What's crazy is those 125 intro calls, to your other point, is a result of only, I think, two call to actions on the podcast this year. So it's not every single episode where I'm saying, hey, give us a call if you want to work with us. It's twice a year and very, very intentional about how I go about doing that. But I think the call to action I did in January of this year, I think resulted in 70-ish introductory phone calls getting scheduled for the first half of the year. So, I mean, it almost filled up our entire pipeline. Just one single cool. call to action. Now, I'm going out on a limb here. Are you <laughs> open to freestyle sharing it? This is almost like a freestyle rap, except it's a freestyle call to action. Are you good with that? Yeah, let's do it. So what's it sound like? So the way I like to approach this is because I don't do this in every show, I like to catch, I don't like, but... It's intentional that I catch listeners off guard a little bit. So typically the show will begin with a monologue from me or kind of the intro music that leads to the introduction of the show. So they're kind of used to that cadence of like with a hit play and, and you know what happens. When I do a call to action, it's at the very top of the show before any of that begins. So I'll kick off the show and I'll say something like, hey, everyone, really quick before we start today's show, I wanted to let you know that my firm and I are, are taking on new clients this year. As you might know, we specialize in working with people that are in retirement or close to it. that are diligent savers and have amassed a you know, million dollars or more and have tax problems in retirement. Right now, we're offering a free retirement assessment. So if you're on the hunt for a financial planner, you think we have the right expertise to help, just go to freeretirementassessment.com to learn more. On that page, you can schedule a call directly with our firm. So something along those lines, it's probably much tighter than that when I actually deliver it. But that was short, pretty tight. In short, it's what do we do? Who do we do it for? How can we help you? And how can you take action in a nutshell? And 
One of the things that I've learned through all this before I started to see results from the podcast is don't assume that your listeners know what you do for a living and that you're open for business. A lot of listeners I learned assumed that I was just like a financial personality. I didn't know you're a financial advisor. I didn't know you had your own wealth management firm. And then the other thing is, I didn't know you were taking on new clients. Listeners have this image of us that may not be the actual reality. It might appear to them that Taylor has this giant podcast and this giant following, this giant platform. There's no way he's taking on new clients right now. Just the other day, this week, Prospect said, I'm shocked. I can't believe you guys only have you know just over 100 clients, 100 households. Like in his mind, I think he thought we had thousands of clients or something. Mm-hmm. So don't assume that, that listeners or potential clients or yeah, I'll say listeners know that what you do and that you're open for business. So I always lead it off with like, we have the capacity to take on about 12 new clients this year. And that's intentional as well. But there's a little scarcity there. Like we're not a high volume firm. Um, and then again, what do I do? How can I help? How can you take action? I've made it very easy. Freeretirementassessment.com. It's just a redirect to our landing page. So dissecting that quickly, what we do, who we do it for, how to take action, or was there one more step in there? I added just how we can help, like our value proposition. I always hit on taxes. You know, we specialize in helping people reduce taxes in retirement, or we specialize in tax planning is typically the value prop that I lead with when I have limited time. That's awesome. That's a very simple framework too. I mean, any advisor listening in could craft their version of that pretty quickly. I'll tell you the other thing that you're doing there that I love. Like if you go to any podcast you listen to a lot, you kind of just get used to like Tim Ferriss. There's like the kind of upbeat club music at the beginning of his, even Rogan, there's like the chimp voice or whatever. Right. And so you get kind of get this pattern and what you're using is a pattern interrupt a couple of times a year where it's like, wait, this doesn't sound like normal. So it's, of course, people are going to listen. That's just natural human curiosity. And obviously putting that on the front end there, they're all going to hear it. So yep. I love how you do it, where you do it, as far as the call to action. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you don't have to do it at the top of the show. I, I will experiment with different places where I'll inject it into the middle of the episode. Like, hey, sorry to interrupt you guys, but really quick, and I'll go into a call to action. I've tried that before. I'll weave it into a story that's part of the script for that episode. But you know, whether you're trying to convert listeners or not, I still think, to me, it's fun as a content creator to shake things up and change things. So I'm constantly trying to inject little things to kind of surprise listeners and do something a little bit different. I think it just keeps it fun. Uh, like you mentioned, a lot of podcasts I listen to, I fast forward through the first three minutes. My listeners know not to do that because sometimes I'll be giving away a book. One year, I bought $5,000 worth of sweatshirts and gave those away. So listeners have to remember these things. Like I better pay attention because there's some cool things that happen sometimes. This clip comes to us from Michael Hyatt who most recently released a book called Mind Your Mindset. If you've listened to this show, you're no stranger to conversations with Michael, New York Times bestselling author, used to run one of the top 10 book publishing companies in the country that published books for Dave Ramsey, John Maxwell, many other thought leaders out there. But in this one, what I love is Michael talks about something he hasn't talked about before, which is actually the mindset that it takes before all of the other business stuff matters. So check out this clip. You're going to love it. Because one of the things that we discovered in our research about neuroscience is that on average, about 20% of our memories, get this, Brad, are false. They're just totally made up. They never happened. And it's hard for any of us to admit. You know, you think, okay, well, I I, I can get that Brad probably makes up 20% of his stories, but not me. All my stories are real. 
No, on average, people make up about 20% of the stories or the memories that they have. But get this, up to 70% are distorted in some way. We misremember some aspect of the story, or we amplify some aspect of the story. I, I can remember one night I was uh, laying in bed with Gail, and, and as we often do before we go to bed, we were kind of reviewing the day's events, and we've tried to discipline ourselves to say, okay, what was the best thing that happened to you today? And so we share that with each other, and she said, what was the best thing that happened to you today? And I said, honestly, it was a horrible day. And she said, well, tell me about it. And so I told her about the day, and she didn't say anything for a minute. And then she finally said, she said, well, it sounds to me like you had a really bad 20 minutes, but the rest of the day was pretty awesome. So I had taken that 20 minutes, and I had amplified that. And so my memory of the day was that it was a terrible day. But she helped correct the narrative. So this is where uh, getting to the facts, and we have a number of questions in the book that help us get to the facts. But again, we have to, to remember that the facts, that's the objective reality. That's what's really true. That's what could be verified. That's what could be substantiated. That's what's objective. Because oftentimes when I start talking about thinking like this, some people jump to the conclusion. They say, oh, so you're a relativist. You don't think anything is real. I said, no, 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 no. The facts are real. I'm just saying the way that we perceive the facts, nothing in the world happens in our brains without it passing through our perceptions. Mm -hmm. And that's where the distortion can happen. So we have to interrogate and say, okay, is that really a fact? Or is this a story I've created based on that fact? So in my case, the fact was I did have a bad 20 minutes. I think that if anybody had been in that conversation or been in that situation, they would have seen those 20 minutes and they said, yeah, that didn't go very well. But I made the jump from that to the whole day was a waste. The whole day was terrible. And so we have to interrogate and try to get, try to get back to the facts. I like to think of the facts, Brad, like a police report or a financial statement. It's stuff that any two people would be looking at it and would have the same perception of the facts. Yeah, that's a fact. But what we do with it is where the difference is. Like one mistake that, that sometimes we make, and that we can interrogate this, is we think something is causation when it's just correlation. So, funny example, and I use this in Austin. Did you know that there's a correlation between shark attacks and ice cream sales? I wouldn't the, have had I not been in Austin, but that's that's right. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. And apparently, if you eat ice cream in the summer, it makes your body sweeter and makes you more attracted to sharks. I'm kidding. There's no causation there. One doesn't cause the other. There's merely correlation. But we oftentimes stumble into the trap of thinking there's causation. You know, that, that person, for example, we walk down the hallway and that person frowns at us or they don't look us in the eye. And we create an entire story based on that. We think, oh my gosh. Brad's mad at me. He won't even look at me in the eye. Or uh, I just met this person, and and they won't they won't look me in the eye. They certainly don't have self confidence. But what if the real story in that latter case was that it's just they're from a different culture, where you don't look people in the eye. They mm -hmm. practice what's called cultural deference. Or what if that person was not looking me in the eye because they were sidetracked based on a story 
completely unrelated to me. Not everything has to be about you. Megan says, and I think it's a great thing to remember, nobody thinks about you more than you think about you. All right, for this clip, it comes to us from Amy Porterfield, who is one of the most prolific digital course creators on the planet. And this little known fact, many don't know this, Amy actually started out working for Tony Robbins a decade plus ago. And she picked up and shared this tip on the podcast. She called it the 2080 rule and what it unlocks when it comes to not only coaching, but how to coach people to take action, which obviously as a financial advisor, that's really important in what we do day to day. So be sure to check out this clip. One thing I've learned along the way, and I probably got this from Tony, is that whatever someone wants to do, whether they want to build a portfolio, they want to change around their finances, they want to work with a financial advisor for many, many different reasons. At the end of the day, there's like 20% is the mechanics, how you're going to do it, how you're going to save, how you're going to invest. But there's about 80% of the mindset and how they look at money, how they look at their own worth, how they look at their legacy is so incredibly important. And this applies to so many different areas. I, it applies to my business when people are creating courses. It applies to a financial advisor's business as well. And so when I say that, Tony used to teach 20% mechanics, uh, 80% is the mindset. And I believe that for everything that we do when we work with our clients. So my point being is that You've got to tap into the mindset. If you want people to get results, if you want them to stick with you, if you want them to do the work, you can't just give them the strategy, the saving strategy, the investment strategy, even explaining to them how their money's going to work and how they're going to make it go farther. It's not enough if you don't help them shift their mindset. The way I do it in my business for my students is in my courses, when someone gets to a module that I know is going to be tough, module three, how to outline your entire course feels daunting to someone who's never done it. So before they dive in, a video will pop up and all it is, is a pep talk. And I'll say, okay, you're going to get into something you're not going to like. You're going to think you can't do it. You're going to think it's going to take too long. I take all the objections and I put them on the table and then I remind them why they're doing this, what it means for them. And I future pace them in my pep talk. And I believe that is important for any industry that is working with someone who is looking to get results. So it's tapping in more into the mindset than the strategy, the techniques, the technology, whatever it might be. Mm, that's so good. Love that. It's I'm just applying that to our business. And it's like, hey, you know, it's going to require change. Mm -hmm. It's going to require maybe starting to get into and understand things maybe you haven't explored before you're unfamiliar with. And yeah, I, that's awesome. I love that. And uh, right there, I'm going to have our coaches go back and listen, because I know we pride ourselves a ton on just the curriculum, the content, and it's a lot of the mechanics. Yeah. But I think if the mindset isn't right to your point, that's where I've just seen people, they, they just check out. It's like, yeah. this is overwhelming. I can't do it. Only that advisor on the stage can do it because they're special. It's not me. And so I love just more of a focus there. Any other, like, just let's call them human objections. You just kind of listed a handful there that you've just seen that hold people back from taking action. 
A really big one is that people will say they don't have the bandwidth or they don't have the time right now. And that one comes up a lot. And I see it come across many different industries. And again, I really, so when I do a webinar, at the end of the webinar, I've taught, I've added value, I delivered on my promise, and I sell something. So my webinars are all free and I will always sell a digital course at the end. And after I sell it and tell them where to go to buy it, people are still on. They want to ask me questions. They're kind of on the fence. And that's when I literally rattle off every objection that I see come up. Much like what I said in the pep talk, you're putting it all on the table. But the reason I do that is because I want them to know I know exactly what you're thinking right now. And so one of the ones that comes up a lot is I don't have the time. I don't have the bandwidth. So what I do is exactly what I mentioned. I future pace. So you not making time for it right now, what does that mean for you in five years from now? Where will you be? What will that look like? If you don't do this, if you don't move something around, make the time or change how you're thinking about it, what does that mean for you in just a few short years? And we talk about that. And I have people type in, if you don't create your course now to create an additional stream of revenue, where are you going to be in a year from now? What will you be struggling with? What are you going to want to be do, but doing, but you haven't yet? Like I have them answer that question. And so again, just keep coming back to those objections, but choosing the ones that are most relevant for your industry is the most important. Love that. And I believe that's is such a common objection in every business that sells something. Like, yes. I, I feel like the invention of the iPhone has created so much distraction that nobody has time for anything anymore. They don't even have time for an hour long course anymore, right? You had to so scrunch true. it down. Have you connected with a guy named Simon Bowen before no. um, out of Australia? So he has something called a futures model. He's a whiteboarding expert and he's brilliant. So if you want an intro, happy to make it. But what you just reminded me of is one of his models and he calls it the red line and the green line. And the green line is up and to the right where they want to go in life. And the red line is, he's I believe, what's he say? Over time, what happens is drift. If you're not intentional, the red line drifts down. And what I love around procrastination is he says, today is the closest you will ever be to the green line because the further you go out, the further away you get. And so he uses that same psychology. Yes. That's what you just remind me of. And, and what's what's funny is that that simple visual model works for our advisors when they're dealing with clients that have procrastination. Thanks for listening into this week's show. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from iTunes user TBFP7. Five stars. They say transformative as a financial planner and dad, it's refreshing to have found Brad's podcast. I think our industry could benefit from figuring out how to balance life and business. Appreciate Brad's perspective and the value of the guests that he has interviewed so far. Keep up the great work for our industry. Well, appreciate it. Whoever you are out there, by the way, if you happen to be listening and it's you, tag us on social at DBDL podcast. Love to send you some swag, maybe a book from past guests. Yeah, there's a lot of financial planners out there that are also dads. There's a lot of financial planners out there that are also moms. It's fun to talk about ways to scale a business that check the boxes financially. And, you know, I look at it, many of us in this industry are very competitive, very achievement oriented. I think this industry attracts those sort of people, but also people that care about others and want to take care of others. But the beauty of it is if you do it right, if you scale a business right, it can also be one of the most rewarding financial 
industries as well for your own personal finances that can create incredible opportunities for your kids. I know my kids have benefited tremendously on some of the amazing trips and experiences we've been able to do over the years, oftentimes when I'm quote unquote working. So yeah, that's my goal. If we can check both of those boxes, that's a pretty awesome job where it really doesn't feel like a job at all. So thanks for listening in. Thanks for taking the time to leave the review and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.